Good morning, everyone. I think we'll try to make a start. So if you haven't grabbed coffee, water or buns, you can still do that. Uh, welcome to PRIO. For those of you who are not at PRIO, uh, it's really nice to welcome you here for this breakfast seminar. And the breakfast seminar is co-organized by um, an ERC project here at PRIO, Migration Rhythms, where we explore the roles of migration in the trajectories of people up into the middle classes. And it is co-organized with the Asia Studies Network. And before I introduce uh, our speaker, Jonathan, uh, I'll pass the word to Arve, who will tell us what the Asia Studies Network is. Thank you, Marta. Good morning, everyone. My name is Arve Hansen from the University of Oslo. And uh, I'm part of leading the Norwegian Network for Asia Studies, together with Helena here and Kenneth Wood-Nielsen. Um, the network has actually, actually existed quite a while, since the 90s now. Uh, Stan Tennyson here at Prio was one of the founding fathers. Uh, we try to bring the sort of scattered Asia studies from different parts of Norway together. Um, and we host uh, annual conferences, we host uh, regular seminars. Um, we're part of uh, the Nordic Asia podcast, which I recommend you check, check out in collaboration with NIAS in Copenhagen. Um, we also have annual lectures, which two years ago was held by Jonathan Rigg. Uh, and very soon will be held by Istan Tunsha um, on geopolitics and, and the rise of China. Um, and if you don't know us, please find us on our website. We have our weekly newsletter with basically everything going on in Asia studies in, in Norway, in Norwegian. Um, and um, yeah, well, Facebook and Twitter, you can, you can follow us on any platform. And we're very pleased to co-host this, this event. Thank you. Thank you very much, Arve. And the, the newsletter is in Norwegian. However, a lot of the events and publications are in English, and they are in the newsletter in English. So even if you don't speak Norwegian, you can get interesting information there. So it's, it's really quite a unique resource, I think. So it's very, very much worth subscribing to. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time doing a sort of very formal introduction. I'm usually not a huge fan of doing formal introductions. I think Jonathan can speak very well for himself, and we're all here to hear his talk. Uh, but <laughs> he's actually written quite a few really interesting books. And for those of you who don't know them, I'm just going to read out a few titles, uh, which I think maybe say more about him and his work than uh, you know, reading out all his um, big titles and achievements, which could also have been done, but you can look up his CV if you're interested in those. But he's, among other, published a book uh, titled More Than Rural, Textures of Thailand's Agrarian Transformation, published in 2019. He's published a book called Unplanned Development, Tracking Change in Southeast Asia, and a book called An Everyday Geography of the Global South, which was published quite a while ago, and I think is a very much used textbook uh, in development courses, at least in geography programs, but probably um, quite a lot beyond. Uh, and one of my favorite papers of Jonathan's, which is published with uh, Albert Salamanca, which is called The Devil in the Detail, Interpreting Livelihood Turbulence from a 25-year panel study from Thailand, which was published in Area seven years ago, I think. Um, and I think those titles give you some hints, which connect quite well with the title of Jonathan's talk today. It depends on picking the development impacts of migration uh, in Asia. Uh, and I, some of those keywords relate to space and to thinking about different places, rural places among other, uh, and to time. And I think the, the time aspect is perhaps what I'm the most fascinated about. Uh, and I've had a sneak peek at the slides and I'm really looking forward to this. So I'm not gonna say very much more about your achievements or anything else, but I'll just pass the floor to you, Jonathan. The floor is yours. 
Thanks, Marta. A real pleasure to be here. Um, last time I was here was the day before the lockdown, wasn't it? Actually, it was kind of the day of the lockdown. I was standing, waiting to give the seminar, and everyone in the room received a text, I think from the Vice-Chancellor or something, saying, no more teaching. But because I'd started, I was allowed to finish. So I think that was two and a half years ago or something. So it's really nice to be back. Although this is a... I feel a bit like a stand-up comic, <laughs> waiting for things to happen as you're all kind of having breakfast and so on. Um, Okay, I, I don't really see myself as a migration specialist. I work on agrarian change, and I've got a few slides later. I started working on agrarian change in the early 1980s in, in Thailand. And at that time, I viewed rural settlements as kind of worlds unto themselves, that people didn't get out much that the sedentary peasant paradigm prevailed, and that I could enter these villages and I could come to understand them and their livelihoods and their economies and their people simply by sitting down and chatting and walking around. And gradually since then, I've come to realize that, of course, I mean, this is a statement of the blindingly obvious, that you only get a, a fraction of an insight into what's going on in the village by being in the village. And there's a lot of stuff going off on kind of off stage. And that then made me think about mobility, migration, non-farm activities, and so forth. So I've come at migration from, from that direction, thinking about agrarian change, and then how do we interpret um, rural livelihoods and capture what's kind of going on in rural areas. Now, I, did, I had grand plans to do something a bit different today, but like most things, and you know what it's like? You write the abstract and the title, and then you forget about it. And then I came, I thought, oh, shit, I've got to now put something together. And this is not quite the talk that I had in my head. Um, maybe it'll emerge at some point. I've got quite a few slides, but I'm going to do it within 40 minutes, and Marta's going to um, sort of wave when I get to 35 minutes. So um, I will keep to time, so we have some opportunity for questions. And, well, hopefully you'll get the idea of where I'm going with this paper. So start with three provocations. Um, one you'll be familiar with, this Amartya Sen's fantastic book, where he made this extraordinary claim at the time that famines are not about a lack of food, and that will be familiar to many of you. It's about you know, the ability to command food rather than an absolute um, absence of food. Um, at the moment, I'm working on climate change vulnerability, and if you think about the work of people like Jesse Rebo, who'd say that climate change vulnerability is actually not about the climate. And I suppose what I want to do or suggest to you today that actually the development outcomes of migration are not really about migration. Um, and if there's one thing that you kind of keep in mind at the end, it'll be that statement. I suppose whether I convince you of that, I don't know. But that's the kind of starting point for the discussion today. Am I in the way? Can you see past me? No. Um, so this is something I wrote, as you can see, what, 15 years ago. And you can see I'm kind of slightly confused as to how to think about those links between migration and development. And I wrote this. Migration may be propelled by poverty and encouraged by wealth. It may reflect resource scarcities at the local level or be an outcome of prosperity. It may be embedded in economic transformations 
or better, better explained by social and cultural changes. It may narrow inequalities in source communities or widen them, and so on. Yeah, so you get the idea that when I was thinking about migration and rural change, agrarian change in, first of all, in Thailand, where I started my work, then in Laos, then Vietnam, then Sri Lanka, more latterly Nepal, some work in Indonesia, I kind of struggle with trying to work out what on earth is going on. And I suppose what I want to do today is think about that. How, how do we understand a statement like that which shows a degree of confusion as to what on earth is going on when we think about migration, mobility, and development in inverted commas? So, first of all, a little sort of rather basic sort of excursion into um, how scholars have thought about this link between migration and development. And people often sort of create this, this sort of um, divide between, if you like, the migration optimists and the migration pessimists. And the optimists inevitably come from, well, either economics, a kind of neoliberal, neoclassical persuasion, or the multilateral agencies. So you can find lots and lots of World Bank, UNDP reports which state that migration is a good thing, that we should be encouraging and supporting migration, that it has positive outcomes for migrants, for source communities, for destination sites, for national economies at both ends of the migration stream. And you can see that in these two kind of quotations here, one from the World Bank. Countries do not prosper without mobile people that we should be creating the conditions and the structures and the policies that enable the smooth, uninterrupted movement of people. And then, of course, you get the migration pessimists, often a very different group, rather more scholars than practitioners, and normally scholars of a kind of Marxist, neo-Marxist, more structuralist persuasion. And I've got a quote here from John Connell, um, who's talking about sort of classic study from the mid-1970s on the effects of migration on source communities in India. I think behind these differences are two pretty fundamentally different ways of approaching migration. Um, one sort of grounded in the notion of individual capabilities, that we all have the means uh, around the world of making migration work for us. And then you've got the migration pessimists taking a much more, thinking about the structural impediments to, to positive movement and positive outcomes. Um, okay, so I think there's a, well, I've got to put a kind of quadruple win in some of these mainstream views of migration. That migration is good for those who move, um, they are able to deploy their human capital, their, even, if you like, get a return on their education and so forth. Um, it's good for those who stay, primarily through, through remittances, that those remittances lift source households, natal households out of poverty, improves their livelihoods, enables people to send children to school and so forth. That it's good for destination settlements. It brings new labour in key sectors, I mean, in Europe, that's sort of in the UK, for example, you know, how on earth do we pick vegetables if we don't allow migrants to come in and do it um, for us, and for origin communities. 
So there's a sort of quadruple win here that I think is embedded in a lot of the mainstream literature. Right, now what I want to do is, um, well, I, I've ended up with four vignettes. I did have five, but I thought it's, it was going to take too long, so I've got four now. Four sort of, sort of cuts into some of those debates to get us to think about, or me to think about, what's going on. So how do we, how do we connect up the fact of movement and the fact of non-movement with development? So start with, um, so I'm going to sort of pick, rather, I suppose, cherry pick from Thailand, Nepal, and Vietnam as a way of sort of illustrating, or if you like, um, these arguments and taking forward my four vignettes. Um, I think there are, um, I sort of, before I get into the detail, I think there's sort of two, I, I, I think they're sort of methodological sleights of hand going on when we're making the move from the migration you know, if you like, the fact of migration and the positive outcomes of migration. One will be obvious to you, which I think, which is the what, if you like, what we value, what we count when it comes to migration, and this tendency to count remittances and the economic impacts, that that is, if you like, the first among equals, that so many studies say we, we recognise there's an awful lot going on, but... It's the, migrate, it's the remittance part that we're really going to focus on. So I think that's the first sleight of hand. The second sleight of hand is to assume that the effects of migration kind of smoothly cross geographical and social space. Right. So, um, earlier this year, I was in Nepal. I'm working on a landslide project. So we're, looking, we're working in areas in the Annapurna range where... Landslides are probably the major um, natural hazard to affect people. I mean, lots of people are killed every year from landslides, and they're getting more serious with time rather than less serious. And sort of one of the puzzles is that people stay there, that they're acutely aware that landslides um, destroy livelihoods, take land away, kill people, injure them, and yet they stay. So there's a sort of interesting question of sort of why they stay. Why don't they, they move, even move 100 metres or half a kilometre? Um, and that sort of makes me and others think about the people who stay. And in a really nice paper from 2019, Shevel suggested this. Migration studies suffers from a mobility bias. This article argued that a systematic neglect of the causes and consequences of immobility hinders attempts to explain why, when, and how people migrate. So, I mean, she's suggesting that, you know, if you like a problem that we have, migration scholars, is that we're too obsessed with migration and that maybe we need to shift our focus to those who stay. And, of course, those who stay, I mean, again, this statement of the obvious, is the other side of the coin from the people who move. It's because people who move that others can stay and the staying is at least as important as the moving. But if we do that, if we shift that focus from the mobile to the immobile, from the migrant to the stayer, then I think we also then shift the way that we think about what is going on. And we do that in three ways. I think, first of all, we, focus from, we change the focus from production to reproduction. 
we start asking about what role do those who stay play in, if you like, the migration story. It also means that we're not just interested in the work of people in other places, but how that work is supported through processes of reproduction in source communities. And I think then, thirdly, we're interested not so much in economics, but in care. And that requires a different way of thinking about migration, a different set of kind of conceptual frames for understanding the impacts of movement. So this is an example. Um, I think probably Ave has seen this before. So this is a, a um, household we interviewed, I think it was in 2015, in northeast Thailand. And this sort of blue-shaded area are the parts of the household that are in the village. So we have um, a sort of elderly couple here. I say elderly. They're younger than me. Um, <laughs> this sort of thing creeps up on you. Before you know it, you think, gee, <laughs> I'm ancient by comparison. Anyway, we have a young, a youthful couple here let's say, in the village, and they're looking after a grandchild. So to come back to where I started with those sort of opening comments, when I was, you know, started thinking about agrarian change, I'd just be focusing on this and this. And you can see in this diagram all the other things that are going on. The, um, the sons and daughters and their partners who are working in other places, who are remitting money, who are leaving their children behind to be looked after by grandparents. And it means that, and you can see on the top left, I've got production, reproduction, and redistribution. So if we think about the household as a social locus in which production, reproduction, and redistribution are interleaved, and we're at least as interested in all of those aspects rather than just the production element, then it sort of opens up the household and it enables us to situate migration in a very different frame. I love this quote from a paper by Catherine Locke um, on Vietnam, and she quotes one of her respondents who says this, if I want to provide for them, my children, I have to migrate. But when I migrate, I cannot take care of them. And what she's doing there is making the production-reproduction link in a much more effective way than I think we do as scholars. Yeah, this thing, I, I provide for them by moving, by generating income, by enabling them to go to school, to achieve, maybe to go to higher education universities, but in doing that, there's a cost which is in terms of care. So I think sort of that quote really nicely for me encapsulate, I suppose, one of the challenges for migrants. And I mean, she's a, this respondent acutely aware of the trade-offs involved in moving, which I think are not often not captured in some of those quotes that I started with from the World Bank and the UNDP and so on, because they don't think about the caring element that's part and parcel of a household like that. <clears throat> okay, second vignette, this one from Thailand. Um, and here I'll, I'll take you back to the early 80s. I mean, this is something I've done with Ave before. So this, um, this is a photo taken earlier this year. This village, Banlonte, um, I've worked in for 40 years now. Um, so this is the Chi River. This is northeast Thailand. This is the Chi River here. 
Uh, there's now a university up here, actually, Mahasarakam, which has opened since I started. Um, so here I am with a farmer who I interviewed just where you can see the arrow. We walked through a lane down next to the monastery, out on to the rice fields, and he was standing there. There he is. And in 2008, I walked down the same lane, out onto the rice fields, and bumped into the same person. I mean, it was an extraordinary one of those moments. So in July this year, there it was. Not only that, he was wearing the same hat. And his T-shirt had the same logo on it. And I, th I just thought, of, wow. And I had with me, weirdly, photos of him from 2008. Yeah, so it's one of those sort of extraordinary moments when I thought, I couldn't have scripted this. Yeah, he was there in the same place, wearing the same clothes, yeah, all those years on. Which makes you kind of think, nothing changes. Yeah, this is a... You know, come back to that kind of sedentary peasant paradigm, the world unto itself, the village that is there and never changes. Um, and yet, as I'll show in a moment, clearly things have changed extraordinarily. Um, but there's continuity. When I did my PhD, I interviewed 81 households. Um, and I've been back now in 94, 2008, 2022, and we, it's a panel study, so we're following up the same households or their descendants. And even this year, we found 76 of the original 81 households. I mean, that's amazing. They're still there. I mean, not necessarily the individuals, but the household still leaves a mark. Its signature is still there. It owns, in large part, the same land that it had back in 1982. So there's a, this sort of thread of continuity that stretches back 40 years at a time when Thailand's gone through the most extraordinary social and economic transformations. You know, gone, going, gone from low income to upper middle income, miracle economy, foreign direct investment, you name it. And yet, I can bump into that man wearing the same hat after, you know, from 2008 to 2022. So to give you a kind of sense of what's gone on. This is 1982. This is 1994. These are colloquially known as Bansa'u, um, Saudi houses, because they're often built using the remittances from what used to be migration to Saudi Arabia. I mean, now there are no ties working in Saudi Arabia, but for a time there were. Um, this is 2008, and this is 2022. So, Sort of visually, this is what's happened to Ban Nong Dae and Ban Ta Song Kwon, the sort of neighboring village. And yet, those, those households are still there. They're not left, they've not moved to Bangkok. They haven't, yeah, we can still find them, which is a kind of interesting, puzzling question, and maybe a separate one, not for today. So let's look at the migration profiles. Unfortunately, we haven't processed the data from the survey this year, so it's just been entered. But it'll be very interesting to see how it has kind of worked through. But I've got the migration profile for 82 and 2008. So this is 82. Um, and essentially, these are people who are non-migrants, and these are the migrants. These are people working in non-farm. Some of them are commuting. Some of them are moving further afield. So they're going to Bangkok. In some cases, they're going overseas. And you can see that it's mainly young people. It's mostly men. And although you can't tell from this graph, 
it's mainly circular. So what was happening back then is people would go during the dry season to Bangkok. They'd work um, in kind of poorly paid activities in chicken slaughterhouses, rice mills, that sort of thing. And then they'd come back for the first rains, prepare the rice land. So it was all about interlocking livelihoods between farm and non-farm. And it was this sort of... This is the sort of... I mean, just to pair it up with that earlier household uh, image, uh, figure. This is sort of how households operated back then. Um, and there was some, as I say, migration as well. But the migration was timed and carefully choreographed to link with rice. And when you talk to people back then, they'd say, rice is too important to sacrifice. Yeah, I've, I've got to come back and grow my rice. There's a sort of saying, um, to have, have sort of rice in the rice barn is like having money in the bank. Yeah, you just make sure that if everything goes wrong, at least you've got enough rice to feed your family. You would never sacrifice that. So migration and movement is sort of... It lies within the shadow of subsistence um, demands, primarily rice. I mean, rice is this signature crop that has absolutely kind of driving, shaping logic to it when it comes to understand um, livelihoods, at least back then. And here we've got um, people from the northeast in Bangkok doing the sort of work that they were famous for. And this, I've mentioned it already, this is a bansau, oh, this is a Saudi house. Um, which has been built on the back of international labour migration, but is always coming back to the village. Okay, so now let's track forward to 2008, and you can see what's happened. Um, migration, non-farm workers kind of moved up the age profile. It's become as much female as male, and it's also come much more longer, much longer term. So no longer, you know, people would stay away into the rice in the growing season. And you'll even find rice fields standing idle, or at least being mechanized, or labor coming in from Laos to fill the labor void if you're going to continue to grow rice. And it would be this sort of household figure. And these are the sort of people who are migrating. So this, we did some work in, um, outside of Utia, uh, near to an industrial estate. You know, young men and women coming down with very different sets of aspirations to that, those earlier photos I took. Living in boarding houses like this, this Horpak, um, and working in foreign invested factories rather than in heavy manual work. And as I say, as many women as men, I mean, sometimes more, more women than men. So what I'm kind of suggesting to you is there are kind of, sort of two generations here. There's that early generation of sort of country bumpkins, peasants on the make. Yeah. But, and if you'd meet them in Bangkok and you'd say, well, who are you? They'd say, well, I'm a farmer. Yeah, they'd never say, well, I'm a taxi driver. I'm, it was always a farmer, that kind of elemental response to who are you. Whereas now I think if you ask people who are you, they won't say I'm a farmer. Yeah. And in fact, I was looking back at some interviews from a couple of years ago, and one woman we were interviewing, I said, what about your grandchildren? Um, and she said, oh, grandchildren. They've never been to the rice field. They don't even know where it is. All they do is look at their phones all day. Yeah. So that disconnection between people and land and farming is, 
in, at least for some, been broken. So these are migrants from another study that we were involved in. And I think there are, I mean, probably, you know, just for argument's sake, two generations of migrants here. There's a first generation who were, if you like, peasant sojourners. And there's a later generation who are worker sojourners. The extension of childhood has meant that young men and women like this probably have never worked on the farm, whereas the people in the top left saw themselves as farmers, first and foremost. Even when they were working in the city, it was always done through the lens of farming and agriculture. And I suppose the point here is that you can only understand this against the bigger structural changes to the Thai economy. The appreciation of the yen against the US dollar following the Plaza Accord in 1985, the desire then for companies in Japan to invest offshore, to move their production offshore. Thailand was a place where they plowed billions of dollars in. The demand for labor, where did it come from? It came from villages like these ones. So a set of kind of international global changes, the forces of late capitalism provided the context within which this could occur. So this wasn't sort of autonomous peasants finding new work in urban areas. We understand this process against those bigger structural changes. And when the finance ministers of the US and Japan sat down at the Plaza Hotel in New York in 1985 and forced the yen to appreciate, this was the outcome. Yeah, we can, there's a kind of thread of explanation which ends up here. And this is the educational status of these migrants. So, of course, across time, they're accumulating education, this extension of childhood argument. When I started working, it was four years of primary, then it was six years, then it was nine years, and it was 12 years of compulsory education. And now, increasingly, of course, they're going into... Um, they're going into higher education, going to university and so forth. Right, now, Cambodia. Um, so Karen, wherever she is, um, and I lived in Singapore for um, a number of years. So I worked at the National University of Singapore for seven years. And if you walk around Singapore, you can, you can take lots of photos like this. So we've got Filipino helpers, migrants in the top left in kind of downtown Singapore on a Sunday on their day off. Um, workers from South Asia on construction sites. This is just down from the flat where I lived. And this is where I parked my bike every morning when I worked at the National University of Singapore and I went in to park my bike. I should say I was the only person in the university to ever use that parking, that, uh, that, that bicycle parking bay. But anyway, and yeah, there was a, a worker. And Singapore is reliant on hundreds of thousands of workers to make the economy and society tick. I mean, Ave was saying there's a kindergarten strike going on. In Singapore, it wouldn't, you wouldn't have that. You would have a helper at home who would look after your children and you could then go productively off to work. Um, so it's around about 40% of the Singapore labor force is people like this. So where do they come from? What's the sort of backstory to how they end up in Singapore? And of course, there are lots of backstories, and I want to tell one, but it, hopefully it serves its purpose. Um, 
And I want to then try and understand that backstory through two sort of frameworks of understanding. One is a GPN, Global Production Network, sort of economic geography, and the other is a livelihoods approach. And I suppose the argument I'm making is that depending on the frame that we use, how we understand what's going on gets shaded very differently. So, um, and I'm doing that with reference to a village in Cambodia called Gokong. This is something that was studied by Melissa Mashrike, who's a professor now at the University of Ottawa in Canada, and we've kind of written together on these issues. So um, I'm connecting up sand in Gokong with sand in Singapore. So this is Gokshulao um, in Cambodia. This is a village where, where Melissa did her PhD in 1998. If you read her book, she says, you know, when I turned up, I was just amazed at this fecund environment, which was drawing in, attracting people from all over Cambodia, sort of wealth of natural resources, an ability to build natural resource-based livelihoods. Then in 2008, so 10 years after she started working there, sand mining began. And over the course of the next five, six years, livelihoods were devastated. I mean, this is a protected area, so there shouldn't be any sand mining, but it, it goes on. And by 2010, I think, or around about 20% of households had had to abandon the village. So sand mining um, was fundamentally compromising the natural source-based livelihoods that exist, existed up until then, had been very productive um, for local households. So what's happening to the sand? Well, Singapore is the largest importer of sand in the world. And sand comes not just from Cambodia, but from Myanmar, from Vietnam, and so on. Um, it used to come from the Philippines, but the Philippines banned it. Then Malaysia, but Malaysia banned it. Then Indonesia, but Indonesia banned it. So it now comes from these other countries. And it enables Singapore, of course, to expand its land area. And it's expanded its land area by around about a quarter between 1965 and 2014. Singapore is constrained physically. You know, its land area isn't enough to support a growing population. So what do you do? You make more land. Um, you create it. And in order to do that, you need sand. So where do you get it from, from neighboring countries like Cambodia? Of course, if you look at the data, this is how much sand Singapore says it imports from Cambodia. And this is how much Cambodia says it exports to Singapore. Yeah, so there's, a, there's an enormous amount of missing sand, and that's because it's illegally mined. Yeah, so it doesn't enter the official statistic, at least at one end. So a lot of this is illegal. Um, so I think there's a connection here between those pictures of those migrants. Yeah, why are they there? They're there because, in a sense, their livelihoods have been compromised due to sand mining, which at the same time, in a sort of rather ironic way, creates the opportunities for them to migrate and take advantage of construction work in Singapore. So if we seek to understand that, if we take GPN perspective, we have you know, sand here, which is then 
becomes valuable as a commodity. It's exported to Singapore. This is a photo I took from landing at Changi Airport where they're expanding eastwards. Um, all of that's reclaimed land you can see there. Yeah. And this is, we see it in terms of a, a global production network system in which a commodity becomes revalued as it's resituated from one context to another. If we take a livelihoods perspective, then we're kind of working this way. We look at the way in which sand was valued as something that sustained subsistence activities rather than commercial activities, and therefore its removal profoundly affects livelihoods that are based on those sorts of activities. You then get the abandoned houses in Gotsalao, and you get the migrant labour in Singapore. Yeah, it's a very different way of thinking about what is going on. And there's a link between labour and remittances. So if you think back to some of those earlier quotes from the UNDP, where remittances are seen as the, the thing that, you know, from migration, we get people deploying their labour more productively and their remittances coming back and supporting livelihoods. But what I'm suggesting to you is that if we place, if we try and understand why they had to move in the first place, then we come away with a different view. And therefore, the precarity of life in Cambodia, the effects of late capitalism in this small corner of Cambodia, is intimately tied to the prosperity that kind of Karen and I had when we lived in Singapore. And, I mean, sort of Karen's sort of fellow Filipinos as well. I mean, they're leaving behind sons and daughters and families in order to support the sons and daughters and families of Singaporeans. So there's that sort of trade going on as well. Right, last vignette. How long have I got? Another five minutes or so? Yeah? Ten, ten easily. Okay. Um, so, last one, uh, Vietnam. And we did a study in Hanoi. I think Arve and I had met by then, 2010. We knew, we, we were in touch, weren't we? Uh, I think you were. When did you start your PhD? 2011. 2011. Ah, I was working in Vietnam. Yeah. So, um, so we did, um, we were interested in migrants in Hanoi. So we were sitting in um, people's homes, in cafes and so on, in Hanoi, trying to understand, these are rural migrants to Hanoi, well, why are they there? Um, what are they doing? And more particularly, how do they become urban? Yeah, so how does a rural sojourner transform him or herself into an urbanite? How do they become urbane in that sort of sense? And then what we also did is we then went out to their sort of natal villages, so the places they came from. So this village is, this picture is from Tenghua, here. So we then travelled out to sort of track down their natal families and interview them as well. We were trying to connect both ends of the migration stream. Um, and for Vietnam, like China, to understand migration, why it happens and why it doesn't, and how people insinuate their way into the urban fabric. You have to do that in terms of the household registration system, the hukou system. Yeah, same as the huku system in China. And there's this lovely quote, I don't know where it's from, but you keep seeing it being repeated, that it is easier to enter heaven than it is to leave the countryside from the Cultural Revolution. Yeah, that just, you know, migration was impossible. 
And that was true for China until comparatively recently, and it was true of Vietnam as well. And here is um, Andrew Hardy saying, you can't even die with dignity if you're not in your place of registration. No one will bury you. Yeah? So the degree to which the household registration system kind of cemented people in place and prevented movement was you know, extraordinary. I think reflected in that quote in the top left there. So if you look at urbanization in Vietnam, you can see from 76 when reunification occurred after the American war, uh, it was 20.6%. 1990, it was 20.8%. I mean, that's amazing. Nothing happened. Yeah, apparently, at least according to official statistics, there was sort of... This is a picture I took in Hanoi in 1990. There was yeah, no urbanite. People were s stuck in place. So I suppose what I'm getting at here is the power of policies yeah, to stop people responding to or prevent them from responding to incentives to move and so on. So in, in Vietnam and China, this extraordinary ability, the registration system, to keep people in place. This was Da Nang in 1990. It's actually the wrong way around for some reason. But anyway, um, this is Hanoi in 2010. So then in this 20 years, the thing that Ave works on, which is mobility, this amazing mobility revolution, people who didn't move where travel was hard, where the state controlled movement. I mean, it was the same in other countries like Indonesia. You, know, you, you couldn't, even if you wished to, you couldn't really get out of your, out of your village. Um, and then with that, you see urbanization taking off. So, um, how do people then become urban? You know, how do they, as I say, how do they sort of insinuate their way into the urban fabric? How do they stop being farmers and start becoming urbanites um, and this is a table of some of our interviewees and this is their residency classification this top two are resident so they have urban Hanoi residents the bottom three are non-resident and you can see that we've got people who have lived in Hanoi between 10 and 15 years still unable to become officially speaking Hanoi residents, which then made us think, well, you know, what's going on? How, how come they're not taking the advantage? Because they could have become urban residents. What was it that prevented them from doing so? And here's someone we interviewed in 2010. I've lived here for 10 years and can't buy a single square meter. Um, so she was sort of lamenting the fact that when she arrived, she hadn't bought land. And these are the prices of land that people mentioned to us between 89 and 2010, going from 1 million Vietnam dong per square meter to 200 million Vietnam dong. So these migrants were, you know, every year it was becoming less and less likely that they would be able to actually embed themselves in Hanoi kind of fully and firmly. This is a lady who did change her hokao. And... It was all about education. If you're going to get into a good university, to be educated in Hanoi makes all the difference. I don't know what... The, the number of rural-based people who get into the top universities in Vietnam is vanishingly small. 
Yeah. So if you want to build a better future for your children, you've, you need you know, to have urban hokau, which means you can go to an urban school, then raises the possibilities you can go to a decent university enormously. So here she is trying to, trying to navigate that. So when you interview these people, of course, inevitably you get the different sort of narratives and stories come through. Right, finally, um, what does all this mean? Uh, these four vignettes, what do I take from them? Um, I, I think, I mean, there's a lovely book by Michael Burrowoy, um, the sociologist, and in it, I think, something along the lines of paraphrasing, he says, kind of methodology is not innocent. So when we choose our methodology and the way we frame our work, we think, oh, well, what shall I do? Shall I, shall I do a survey questionnaire or shall I do interviews? Maybe I'll do some you know, participatory methods. Those choices and how we then put them in a conceptual frame really make a difference. Yeah? They're not just sort of things you can do late at night and think, yeah, okay, we'll do that. And how many should I do? I'll do 40 or, or whatever. Actually, Michael Burroway is saying <clears throat> that what we come up with at the end descent depends on those choices that we make. So do we focus on migrants or non-migrants? That quote from Shewell right at the start, that if you focus on non-migrants, the stories that come through are very different. Yeah, we shouldn't assume through the eyes of a migrant that we're capturing what's actually going on. The privileging of production over reproduction, hopefully that came through early on. If we're interested in care and in production and in reproduction, then that nice quote from the respondent of Catherine Locks, yeah? I might be able to provide for my children, but I can't care for them. So what do we focus on? Provision or care? How we value things. So do we value sand as a commodity to build with, which is the GPN perspective, or sand to live by, which is the livelihoods perspective? And depending which sort of entry point we think about sand and its place in this relationship between Cambodia and Singapore, again, we'll, we'll come up with, it, if you like, a different answer. Um, <clears throat> hmm. I was doing this last night. I'm trying to think why, what I meant by that one. Employing concept. Anyway, forget it. Um, finally, viewing policies as background noise. You think of the Hokao system. I think when you talk to Vietnamese scholars like Ave here, you'll say that actually these policies really, yeah, it's not, it's not just sort of something you can push into the background and treat um, you know, migration as if it's the same everywhere. There are a few policy differences. Policies actually for Vietnam are absolutely critical in understanding what's going on. Um, and finally, and this comes back to that very early slide between individual capabilities and structural forces. You know, we assume, I think there's a danger, I mean, I've fallen into this, I don't know if it's a trap, but at this tendency to assume that people can make their own futures. Increasingly, I think they can't. I think actually they're kind of trapped by history. I mean, I mean history in the sort of broader structural sense. We are where we are in that horrible expression that people use all the time, don't they? Yeah, I think, what do you mean by that? But um, I think that's, that's maybe what they mean, yeah? And so this focus on the individual as an agent with agency, which has been tended to be my work, I think 
you then push those, if you like, the way that people are trapped by structures to the background. So we've just written a paper in world development trying to rethink livelihoods through a kind of relational lens. And I was thinking in putting together this talk that I suppose migration is the same. I mean, that um, provocation I started with, that the impacts of migration on development are not actually about migration. And I think if you, if you think of this as migration and think of it relationally, then migration doesn't become the most important thing that we're focusing on. It's just one of a whole range of issues that we have to take into account. Um, and, and I suppose it, if we think of it relationally, then it opens up different ways of thinking about migration and its development impacts. It opens up the household. And we had a long talk yesterday, a workshop about how do we define the household? Is it a co-residential dwelling unit? Is it multi-sited? Who's in, who's out? Yeah, that really actually, yeah, really key. Who, who do we decide a part of the story? Um, opens up the histories and temporalities that we need to track back. We need to understand why people are where they are. Um, we have to realize that the global processes don't sort of, I mean, that book by Friedman, you know, The World is Flat. Have you ever read that? And I kind of think, no, the world is not flat. Yeah. And as a geographer, we're in the business of making sure that we don't assume that there are these forces that are just um, sort of ending up, which is, I suppose, flattening the world so that we can treat it in a uniform manner. Um, and that then, I think, opens up how we think about the links between migration and poverty and prosperity and the ties between the two. Two final slides, and then I'll end. Um, I added these this morning. This is, um, this is a model of climate-induced migration. You've got climate change here, and you've got migration down there. Yeah, and you change these things and you change that. And, you know, that's what I'm kind of saying, that, that sort of predictive model of migration as an outcome of these sort of inputs, I would say we need to avoid this way of thinking about migration. Now, the next figure, then my final slide, you won't like this figure. This is a classic social scientist trying to do, you know, this is a natural scientist doing a figure. This is a social scientist doing a figure, yeah. So, I mean, it's a mess, isn't it? But I think, I don't know if it's intentional. I was going to say, I think it's a mess intentionally, yeah. It, that here, you've got kind of migration, but all of this stuff going on. And I suppose it's our job to, to look at all of this and try to make sense of what on earth is going on. Um, and... Although I like the look of that, I think that's the way the world really is. And that's it. Thank you. Thanks very much, Jonathan. I think that was amazing. Um, so my question is related to the climate uh, mobility example, I guess, from the Nepal study that you just did. So it's kind of unfair to ask you, because I know you literally just came back, really, from, from fieldwork not very long ago. But I still want to ask, because I'm really curious about this sort of, um, the exact dynamic that you were describing with people staying, and even staying kind of um, very locally. So not even necessarily moving just a very short distance when they are actually at risk, and, and they know. 
and we can all, I think, imagine the sort of uh, financial reasons why, because you know there's a cost involved that they may not be able to afford. But I'm very curious whether you could sort of expand a bit on the sort of staying dynamics and what people said or how they thought about it. And the reason why I'm asking is that it's extremely similar to dynamics which we found doing fieldwork on the Sindh coast uh, in Pakistan, uh, in an area where, where there's been a lot of mobility in and out, um, a lot of people moving in because it's a safer area than areas that are now underwater, submerged, uh, but still at very at risk and exactly the same sort of um, desire to stay and not only just stay in the area, but to stay, stay you know, where you are. And I'm sort of curious as to what, whether there are similarities or differences perhaps there. So maybe you could, if you can, expand a bit, just for, you know, yeah. fieldwork notes sort of. Yes. Um, it was... The, the last time I was doing fieldwork in Nepal was before the 2015 earthquake, and we were working on an earthquake project. And when we asked people, uh, earthquakes? And they'd go, what earthquakes? No problem. Yeah, and then, of course, there was the earthquake. What was interesting in this study, we were, we were working on landslides, which are kind of secondary hazards, sometimes um, triggered by earthquakes, but for other reasons as well. And it was the top of everyone's list, landslides. They said, what, what are it? landslides? Yeah, so it was a real change over that period. But when we asked, you know, sort of people, well, why are you still, you know, they'd, they'd say, we see, the, see up there, my house, you know, one guy, my house, you know, three years ago was taken away. We only just survived. And I just said, well, why are you still here? And they'd say, well, what can I do? Um, so it was that sort of sense of powerlessness. But they did lots of little things. So they send their children to boarding school, you know, take them away out of harm's way, if you like. They, um, I mean, that man I was just talking about, he kept all his um, kind of valuable documents with his brother. And if it rained, he would lift his children at night and take them to his brother. So whenever he thought, gee. And the thing about rain, you realise when you're in a kind of um, zinc roof, you can't hear anything. So people thought, well, surely you could hear a landslide coming. You can't hear anything when it's pouring with rain. It's absolutely deafening. So he would, you know, they'd lift the children and move. Um, they, they're growing different crops in different ways. I mean, they're engaging with migration as a way of, yeah. Sometimes they're buying land in other places, down on the terai. Um, so there are lots of kind of little ways, but they're still there. Um, and, and when you, you sort of push them, say, well, how come? They, they say, well, I can't. This is my... Although, we, you know, we're working in Qatar or wherever it is, this is where we stay to grow rice, just in case everything goes wrong. Yeah, if if you know the sun's sojourn in Qatar doesn't work out, and there were people who had come back early because they'd been injured, who had borrowed lots of money and couldn't pay it back. So you know, at least here we can grow millet and so on and feed the families. So it was a sort of calculation that it was a price. I mean, I don't know if it's a price worth paying, but it was a risk worth taking. Thanks. I guess that really illustrates your point also on how you research it, because if you would then be narrowly asking about migration, you would have not captured that. Because if you'd asked them a yes-no question about whether they want to move or not, or whether they had moved or not, you wouldn't have captured those smaller things. And I guess also because what you're saying about agency um, is maybe, I'm not sure it's whether it, it's in the migration pessimist camp, but it's a bit depressing. You know, your last slides in terms of, you know, we're basically all kind of victims, <laughs> victims of, his, of history yeah. in a way. Um, and I, sort of, I was also reminded by, uh, also from the Nepalese context, of kind of 
sense that fatalism is a thing, not just in Nepal, but also in other parts of South Asia. So I don't know whether you want to comment on that as well. I'm the sort of, you know, are we all doomed <laughs> sort of sense. Yeah. But I'm thinking that your example actually shows that, you know, that's not really what you're saying. You're saying the grand change is maybe asking for too much, but people do have agency in the smaller things. Or am I trying to be too positive about what you said? No, I mean, I've, as I've got older, I've got more miserable, um, more pessimistic, I mean, in a weird sort of way. I mean, I used to think, thinking back, I mean, I look at my early work, and I really thought that, you know, people can change their lives, yeah? They can, they can kind of grasp the nettle, and they can change their futures by, and I suppose increasingly I'm feeling that actually that's, I mean, it's not a dream, but, you know, some people do it. But I think this, well, of course, with qualitative work, you know, how, how we pick our examples and how we leaf them together to construct an argument. You know, you can, you can look at the 50 interviews and you can, you know, tell one story and can, or, or, or another. And I suppose how we do that from a qualitative point of view, which is why, um, I mean, Anu, with, you know, your project, you can do a survey and then that survey will kind of keep you honest, if you like enable you to say, right, well, the survey shows this right now. How do we dig into the why questions by looking at the qualitative work? Um, but, I mean, the earthquake, it was interesting. When we asked people about, well, in my notes, we've got a, re a really nice bit. We asked someone, well, what, what happens with earthquakes and, and landslides? Well, what do you think happens? And this guy said, well, we know what the scientists say. They say there are these two plates and they're doing this and this, but... Phew, I don't believe it. I mean, it just doesn't stand up to, you know, it just doesn't make any sense, does it? Actually, what's happening is there is a snake under, you know, there's soil and there's rock, then there's water, and there's a snake down there. And when the snake moves, you get earthquakes. But people were very aware of the science, if you like, but they would discount it. They said it just, it doesn't add up to me. I don't know about you, but, you know, which was fantastic. So, um, and we, we had natural scientists with us, and you could see them sort of thinking, but they're wrong. And I said, no, no. They're not wrong, it's just different, yeah? A way of thinking about causality. But anyway, yeah. Okay, I'm going to try and actually do my job properly and see whether there are questions and sort of gather them up potentially. So I see Arvara first, and then if anyone else has questions or comments, do raise your hands, because what happens is usually that we run out of time and then your chance will be missed. So, Arvara. Thank you. And thank you, Jonathan. That was absolutely brilliant, I think. Um, in my field, we... We, we talk about distributed agency. So it's distributed between the social setting, the individual, the material surrounding, the systems of provision. There's a long and interesting discussion, I think. But what we, I think, oft, too often end up with is limiting the agency or the individual to, to a larger extent. Anyways, that wasn't my, my question. My question was, um, I have two questions. One of them was thinking about your, your migrants in, in Hanoi and the migrants in Singapore. Um, they're quite different situations, right? But they do similar kinds of jobs. So in, in Hanoi, um, what Ming Nguyen in Bielefeld has called socialist servants, they're the ones uh, coming from the countryside that make, to a large extent, they make sort of middle-class lifestyles possible by watching the children, by running these tiny little um, uh, street kitchens, by all kinds of things, really. Um, so I was just thinking, like I was wondering, is that is that the same process, or is it something different? And w could we expect, if we took the sort of economic geography perspective, could we expect that in the long run those socialist servants 
which are to a large extent in Hanoi Vietnamese, uh, to be replaced if Vietnam becomes a much more uh, wealthier country like Singapore? Would they be replaced by migrants from, from other countries? It's a, it's, a, it's a big question and invites for some speculation. Um, my, my other question was, kind of a concern, and I've, I've learned from you and others in Vietnam also that, you know, as, as you said a few times today, young people don't want to be in the rice field. Um, and to, as I've learned from your papers, to a very large extent, the ones doing um, and the rice today uh, are older generations. Yet rice remains incredibly important, both socially and, and at least economically, and in terms of, of food security. So, should we should we be concerned? What will happen in a generation to to, to food security? Oh. Good. Do you want me to answer those two? Because there was a question there, and two two questions. What do you want? Do we take them, or shall I answer and we work our way around? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> okay. So. Um, I think it is different in Singapore and Vietnam. Um, I mean, in Singapore, you know, if you're a Filipino helper, you can't bring your family. You come on your own. If you get pregnant, you're deported immediately. You can't fall in love without the permission of the Ministry of Manpower. Um, I mean, the degree to which you are kind of constrained within that, and kind of ditto for... Um, the you know some of the construction workers. I mean, it's interesting when COVID hit Singapore. I mean, you probably saw here Singapore was lauded as an extraordinary example of you know community infections were almost zero. Infections in the dormitories were almost 100%, but they didn't count because they weren't Singaporean. So I think that really makes a difference. Um, they you know that sense you know the ability to discount 40% of the labour force because they're not Singaporean. You know, that, that, that says something about, well, value. Who counts and who doesn't? When Kishore Mahbubani says that in Singapore, poverty has been eradicated, he's not talking about those 40% yeah, who are right at the bottom of the, the, the pile. Yeah? So I, I think it is different. I mean, whether in time in Vietnam as it kind of works its way up, you know, we'll find other people coming in. I mean, that to some degrees happened in Thailand. I mean, when I was in Thailand, it was a labor exporter. It's now a labor, labor importer from Myanmar, from Laos, from Cambodia. And they're working in the chicken slaughterhouses and on the fishing vessels and so on. Um, so if you like, the Thais have priced themselves out. So I guess it is possible that, yeah, that that could happen like that. Um, Rice. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, th th there is an alternative argument. If you look at the work of Ben White, he says the reason why young people are not growing rice is because not because they don't want to, but they can't get access to land. Yeah, so, and that comes back to this sort of agency structure thing. He's saying it's actually not young people deciding they don't want to be farmers. It's that the structures of land ownership mean that they can't, they don't have the opportunity. So there is an alternative. So if you look at the work of Ben White, he would say something a little bit different. But I don't agree with him. <laughs> I think, I mean, time and again, people are, I think, sort of educating themselves out of rice production. But there are ways in which you can <coughs> um, continue to grow rice through kind of scale-appropriate or micro-mechanization. You look at Japan. You know, the average age of farmers in Japan is, I think, 72 or something like that now. So... 
aging farmers or super aging farmers are being replaced by aging farmers. So people are retiring from work in, I don't know, Tokyo or Osaka or wherever, and then they're going back to the farm. Um, so whether that's what we'll see, and can people continue to grow rice even into the kind of 70s or, or um, maybe that's possible. But I, I mean, I didn't talk about it. One, one thing I didn't expect, and I think you probably know this from my work, is that people still keep hold of their rice land. They don't sell it. And they still, in the main part, grow rice. Or at least they still have the potential to grow rice. And that's a real... I mean, I kind of think, why haven't they sold their land? If these young people have now got university degrees, you know, they're kind of like, like you, and they're working in Bangkok, why are they keeping hold of this land that's maybe four or five times the size of this room? Why don't they sell it? And when you sort of ask them, they say, ah, oh, that would be so foolish. And in Vietnam as well. Because you never know what's around the corner. And you think the 97, 98 Asian financial crisis, the global financial crisis, COVID, you know, time and again, every five or six years, something happens and people, you know, the, the rural redoubt as a place you retreat to is there. And at least you have rice. So that, that's been a real surprise to me. Wonderful, thanks. So we have questions in the back. So maybe if you'd like to introduce yourself. Uh, yes, thank you. I'm Nina Holmelin. I'm working at Cicero, Center for Climate Change here in Oslo. And I did my PhD on Nepal uh, with uh, Jonathan Rigg as a first opponent. So he knows my work, uh, but you don't. So I was focus uh, focusing on food production and climate change and uh, those who stay, not that many, uh, not that much those who go. Uh, but migration is, uh, of course, uh, largely a part of uh, uh, what what is going on in Nepal, um, and I was also um, surprised by how many who returned to farming after a period of going abroad, because they go abroad to building the football stadiums in Qatar, uh, to Malaysia, and of course to India, but many of them also returned. And uh, while they were gone, um, many people, were, uh, the women was also keeping up agriculture. And just like you said now, no one was selling their land, even if they moved to Kathmandu, even if they moved abroad, they were still keeping the land and growing food. And um, a lot of this reproduction uh, focus was, um, was my also focus to see how much of the, um, how people were thinking about the most important thing you do is to grow food. At least you have something to eat. Uh, everything else was kind of precarious and uh, risky and uh, you do it to make money and then you return. Uh, but the governmental plans for economic development in Nepal is kind of to make the same transition as uh, Southeast Asia with uh, industrialization and urbanization and kind of getting this uh, growth thought, getting people out of agriculture and into the industry and making money and into cash cropping, uh, even though the farmers do not think in that way at all. Um, and I just wonder, do you think that Nepal, as a poor country, squeezed between India and China, two big and powerful neighbors, and coming this late in the process, do you think that they actually, would it even be possible for them to make the same economic journey as uh, the countries who came before and has already risen to a higher level of economic development? Or are they kind of stuck in the bottom of global capitalism? Would it be possible for them even to make that journey and would it be this is my second question would it be good would it be beneficial to the people living there who kind of are at the as you have named it precariously uh, moving around globally trying to make some work but not being able to start a life you can't start a life in qatar you have to go back to your family your place your village 
that's where your kind of your whole life cycle can happen. That's where you can get married, have children, and have kind of a life at all. So is that um, plans, the, the economic plans for development, for industrialization, for getting kind of Nepal out of the agrarian phase and into the industrial area, era, is that even possible uh, at this point? Yeah, um, thanks, Nina. Um, I, I was in I was there. I mean, not for very long. Two weeks this this summer doing this field work in the Annapurna area, um, and also to the, the other side of Kathmandu. Um, and we had those sort of conversations in the evening, as you do. And I don't see it. I mean, but then I didn't see it for Thailand. I mean, I, I think you know I, I've got a huge amounts of hindsight, but very little foresight. Yeah, I think maybe that's characteristic of a lot of academics. Yeah, we're wise after the event. And actually, if you go back to, you know, the mid-80s and you read stuff being written, I mean, not just on Thailand, but on, on Vietnam, on, um, and no one kind of saw it coming. And then suddenly you think, well, yeah, of course. Yeah, everyone knew that was going to happen. But actually, I don't know if many did. I mean, with the, um, the second oil price rise in 79 to 81, I mean, Thailand is a net oil importer. You know, it was hugely indebted. It was a low-income economy. It was all about how do we... I mean, similar debates that's going off on in Nepal now. And, and yet, within the space of five or six years, it went from one you know, just extraordinary change over that period, driven by, you know, a whole bunch of developments in the global economy. Now, so, I could be wrong, but for Nepal, I don't know. I mean... I mean, the infrastructure um, being landlocked, sandwiched, as you say, between kind of India and China. I mean, the challenges of... I mean, what's amazing in... I mean, that picture um, of the young women outside of Utia, the factories that they work in pick up daily from 100 kilometers away for people to work in the factories. So the kind of... The reach of factories and the labor that's available. I mean, in Nepal, it takes about five hours to go about, you know, about 50 kilometers, doesn't it? I mean, and you think, it's not going to work. Yeah. So I'm, a, I'm pessimistic um, about, about that. But I mean, your work, yeah, exactly kind of echoes, I mean, a much, a much more informed way than what I was, I was trying to say here, that you know, if we're going to understand what's going on in, in Nepal with migration and agriculture, you know, we've got to see it in terms of the, the people who stay. And even when land is idle, you know, in Indonesia they talk about land being gosong, empty. People don't sell it, it's just standing there. And um, you'll know in Nepal, you know, acres and acres of land just standing unused, uncultivated, but not being sold. And that says something about um, that sense that you know, ultimately, if everything goes kind of belly up, at least this is what we can resort to. So, yeah, but I'm not optimistic. Hi. So um, that was a really interesting presentation, Jonathan. And uh, I think uh, throughout the uh, presentation, I was probably thinking back in relation to the Indian context, which is what I worked on. And I was just... Um, curious about uh, land ownership uh, in, in terms of agricultural land and profitability because, um, okay, so maybe I should tell the context from which I'm asking, which is that uh, a lot of rural to urban migration happens in India because it's not any more profitable to cultivate land and earn a living. Uh, there is a lot of 
what you can call as distress migration to urban areas. And it's not that you get a good job in the urban area either. Uh, but you kind of struggle in the informal sector in the urban areas rather than uh, being in the village and cultivating. Uh, and at the same time, sometimes you also see people, or a, a lot of people from different parts of India actually go to the Gulf Cooperation Council directly from the rural area. They, they kind of reach an airport and somehow, sometimes even illegally, travel to these foreign destinations and work in like very precarious conditions. And sometimes they are deported back that, but then I've interviewed people who still go the fourth time because somehow agriculture is not at all a viable option. And this has also got to do with, at in, in the Indian scenario, uh, because of, there is also a lot of landless uh, labor in the rural areas. But then the, the small holdings are completely non-profitable as well. And yeah, so and though we have governmental programs, like uh, we have this program called M Narega, which kind of tries to keep the rural population in the rural area by kind of trying to find employment for them there. But it does not translate into any kind of productive uh, activities, mostly um, because they need they, they need to be ensured 100 days of employment they are given some kind of work so this is so this is the context from which i'm talking so i'm kind of uh, interested in terms of land use and land ownership and how that's connected in the in the context that you have spoken about yeah thanks anu um, i mean i would say most uh, the land holdings um, are increasingly sub-livelihood, yeah? So you can't really sustain your, a decent standard of living off your land alone, yeah? I would say, um, in the most part, that's, I mean, you might grow enough rice to feed your families, but all of those other things that you need to meet requires you to do other things. Um, and I had a PhD student who finished a couple of years ago, uh, someone called Jess Glendening, who did her work in eastern Indonesia, Nistangara, on Flores. And I went out and visited her in the field there. And, I mean, her, her thesis sort of hang, hung on one kind of sentence or um, contention, which was that um, these people had to move, but they could never leave. Yeah? In the sense that young people had to move from the village for the reasons that you outlined, and they would go and work. But they could never leave the village in that kind of more profound sense, leave it behind. Yeah, they had to come back because they had family to support, they had um, obligations to people, because their work in the urban areas, I mean, they went to Kalimantan and Sulawesi and Bali and so on, was never secure. Yeah, they never really got a job that enabled them to leave in that kind of deeper sense, yeah? So they're always kind of going back, and always going back, I mean, when she was interviewing them, I mean, her dissertation was wonderful, kind of frustrated. I mean, often they got degrees, but they're going back to these remote villages in Nusatengara and Flores, which are, um, you know, it's not Java. You know, Java, you move around, or Sumatra for that matter. So I think there's that... That sort of same, I mean, I've never worked in India, but in India, you know, people are distressed migration because they've got sub-livelihood holdings. They're going to the city to get work that just 
keeps them above or over the bar so they're not put, you know, keeps things ticking over. But always having in some way to be connected back um, to their village of origin. The, the numbers who manage the transition, I mean, I, I don't know how many, you know, it's probably a, a minority. And most people are maintaining that, well, it's come back to this sort of interlocking livelihoods kind of thing across space. Uh, but it says something about urban work. But of course, it also says something about rural conditions and agriculture and the fact that, I mean, in Vietnam, when you sit down with people to work out how much profit you get from cultivating rice, you know, for sour land, you know, it's something like seven days' work. That's your profit, but you still grow your rice. That comes back to Arve's point. Yeah, so that's the one thing you can be, you can depend on. Um, and, I mean, Nina kind of talking about it with reference to, to Nepal as well. So I'd, I'd love to work in India. So invite me to work there. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jonathan, for, for amazing answers as well. And thanks for really interesting questions. I think there are many conversations to continue, which uh, I think hopefully we'll have the chance to do. Uh, there are lots of, lots of events with the Asia Studies Network, uh, and they're very open to co-organizing and co-hosting events. So I think that's one avenue to pursue. And hopefully we'll be able to do that from Prio as well, both in relation to migration and, and to other topics, and in conjunction with the Migration Rhythms Project, but also maybe with the MIGNEXT project as well. So I'm just going to end on an ad, because we have a, a huge EU-funded EU funded, coordinated projects from PRIO called MIGNEXT, which focuses on connections between migration, development, and policy. And several of us in the room are working on that project. We've done empirical research in 10 countries in Asia, Africa, and the Middle East, survey and qualitative work. Uh, and indeed actually tried to do, in a way, what you're advocating. So we've worked in local areas, speaking to people who live there, in order to try and unpack uh, connections between migration and development both ways. Um, so we're just about to start analysis. So if you're interested, you can look up MIGNEX uh, on the PRIO webpage. So there's a newsletter that you can follow, and there will be, I don't know, I think 20 or 30 publications coming out over the next two years from that project. So look that up if you're interested. But with that ad, I would like to thank Jonathan again, and let's give him a big hand, and thanks for coming. <laughs>